Hi everyone, welcome to the Resident Review. My name is Nick Olick. I'm a PGY2 here at Duke Plastic Surgery. I'm joined by my co-residents, Hannah Langdell and Whitney Lane. Today we're continuing our new series called the Resident Review Flapcast. And in this series, we do a deep dive into common flaps using plastic surgery. Uh, each episode, we have an in-depth discussion with an expert plastic surgery attending, and we highlight preoperative planning, key dissection steps, technical pearls, and really any wisdom that our uh, expert guest host is able to offer us. And today we're excited to be joined by our very own Dr. Scott Hollenbeck. So Dr. Hollenbeck completed his residency in general surgery at New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City, followed by his residency in plastic surgery here at Duke. Dr. Hollenbeck is now an associate professor of surgery, as well as the vice chair of research for the division of plastic maxillofacial and oral surgery and the chair of breast reconstruction. He's also the board vice president of education for ASPS. Dr. Hollenbeck, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Thanks, Nick and Whitney as well. So, you know, it's really my honor, my privilege to be part of this. You all have done a great job brought in some really world-renowned speakers, and, uh, you know, we know each other and work together a lot, so I appreciate you asking me to be part of this, and again, it's my pleasure. Hopefully, I can pass along a few tips and tricks to help with the deep flap, which is the flap of interest for today, so I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you. So, as Dr. Hollenbeck alluded to, we are going to be talking about the deep inferior epigastric artery perforator flap. Um, while it has only really been around since the late 1980s, it's been become extremely popular and is now considered the gold standard in autologous breast reconstruction. It offers abundant, well vascularized tissue with a reliable long pedicle that can be used not only for breast reconstruction, uh, but for any really large defect requiring bulky reconstruction throughout the body. As compared to some of its predecessors, the tram flap, um, there is little to no functional donor site morbidity with this, which is making it, uh, made it a very popular um, option for autologous breast reconstruction. All right. I just really quickly want to review some of the, the vascular anatomy of the flap. So uh, as the flap is named, our pedicle is the deep inferior epigastric artery. Uh, this vessel originates off the external iliac artery proximal to the inguinal ligament. It runs superimedially uh, between the peritoneum and the transversalis fascia most commonly divides uh, into a medial and lateral branch, which eventually gives off our medial and lateral row perforators. Uh, it's been shown that 90% of these perforators are located within a six centimeter radius, inferior and lateral to the umbilicus. Um, and our venous drainage of the flap is typically one to two vena comitans that run with the artery. You could also have some accessory venous drainage from the SIEV system, which I'm sure we'll get into during our discussion with Dr. Hollenbeck. Thank you, Nick. So we'll turn it over to back to Dr. Hollenbeck now. So if you could start with your preoperative evaluation of patients, uh, when you're seeing a patient in clinic, uh, what are some of your contraindications for using a deep flap and how are you evaluating patients to see if they're appropriate uh, surgical candidates? Yeah, sure. Uh, just, you know, before we start, I think it's worthwhile to point out some historical aspects about this flap. Like many things in plastic surgery, what we now know as a DIEP flap or DF flap or deep flap is an evolution of the original tram flap described by Carl Hartram. And then uh, that flap, as you know, was based on the superior epigastric. And uh, there were many techniques that evolved to try to improve the blood flow 
by uh, delaying uh, either from a vascular standpoint, actually cutting the deep inferior epigastric system uh, to other skin delays. And then that evolved actually to a free flap where the primary blood supply was then based on the deep inferior epigastric system as it traveled in through the rectus muscle as a tram flap, which was popularized by many, including Jim Grotting. And then uh, the further evolution came through perforator techniques, perforator flap dissection techniques, which are popularized in, in many areas around the world. Uh, but as it pertains to this flap, uh, two individuals, one in the US, Bob Allen, and another in Europe, Philip Blondeel, really helped uh, popularize this flap, perhaps others in, in Asia and other countries. Uh, but those two individuals really popularized this as the gold standard of uh, breast reconstruction. But it can also be used for other things too. I use deep flaps for all kinds of uh, wounds, including a scalp in the past, lower extremity, uh, but obviously we know it well as, as a breast reconstruction flap. So as it pertains to those patients, uh, many will come in actually aware of this flap. There's quite a bit of uh, social media and uh, online uh, discussions regarding this flap as an alternative to implants. Uh, so uh, it's definitely worth knowing a lot about and keeping your eye on uh, the trends in that regard. Uh, you know, for, for patients to, to be a candidate for this flap, in my opinion, it's almost everybody. Uh, except for, you know, really young uh, women that, that do not have any available tissue at all. And perhaps, um, you know, it would be a bad decision to, to place a big scar along their lower abdomen. Um, so many, many patients certainly are, are candidates. Uh, depends, of course, on the size uh, of the breast reconstruction you're trying to achieve. Uh, but, you know, flaps can be added to the deep flaps. So you can have uh, multiple flaps. You can also add implants to it. Uh, to allow for greater volume and even fat grafting. So uh, as it pertains, you know, to a, to a nice uh, skin paddle that allows for resurfacing and a delayed reconstruction or just simply fat, soft tissue uh, to fill a mastectomy defect, it, it works really well. Um, you know, I think the main contraindications are somebody with prior surgery. And, and it's all kind of relative. If they've had, uh, for example, uh, uh, right upper quadrant incision for perhaps for open cholecystectomy. That, in my opinion, is not a contraindication. I just simply wouldn't undermine as much uh, that upper skin flap and would simply try to just close that without too much uh, undermining or tension. Patients that have had a lower abdominal incision or a fan and steel, uh, also not a contraindication uh, unless somehow through that incision, the deep inferior epigastric vessels were cut uh, that's extremely unlikely, but could happen in an OBGYN emergency uh, or some other type of uh, misadventure. But it's very unlikely that through the fan and steel that that has happened. Uh, so that's not a contraindication. Uh, the one I have the most trouble with are large ventral hernias. Uh, if you have a ventral hernia, it oftentimes kind of really distorts the anatomy, uh, pushes the perforators off to the side, uh, and also is something you have to wrestle with as you do the dissection. Uh, sometimes I'll try to go in and repair those hernias and then do the flap dissection and the perforator dissection. Um, but, but ventral hernias are very challenging. Uh, previous open appies can be challenging as well, especially if you're trying to do a bilateral case because sometimes that right-sided flap has been uh, heavily compromised by a, an open appendectomy uh, incision. Uh, laparoscopic port sites, not a big deal unless one of the port sites went directly through the deep inferior epigastric system. So the only way to know for sure is to get an imaging of some kind ahead of time, either CT, angiogram, or MRA, 
Um, the other one that comes up quite frequently is, is liposuction. Uh, overall, in my opinion, not an absolute contraindication, but it certainly makes a dissection uh, more challenging and it makes the flaps perhaps uh, less reliable uh, because some of the perforators have been damaged, may not function as, as you would imagine. So that's, that's my take. Basically, anybody, in my opinion, is a candidate, except for the really young patients. In those cases, I, I do prefer implant-based reconstruction. Dr. Hollenbeck, as you said, and as we know, um, you get CT scans on all of your patients prior to surgery. How does that CT scan help um, you with your preoperative surgical planning and in making your um, initial markings in the operating room for how you're going to actually um, develop your deep flaps. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, also something that's been an evolution in, in my practice. Initially, uh, I did not use a CT scan and I was uh, proud of the fact that I could just dissect out the perforators, but time and time again, I'd realized that I missed a large perforator or, uh, you know, made bad decisions as, as it pertains to picking the right perforator. So uh, I, I am a strong believer in preoperative imaging, and I think most people that do a lot of these flaps are. Uh, it'll pick up a, a major problem like a, a previously damaged pedicle, uh, but it'll also show you the perforators. And, and you can pick a side if you're doing just a single uh, breast with a hemi-abdominal flap. You can choose which flap you think will be better perfused, has a more dominant perforator with less of an intramuscular dissection. Uh, so you, you might be able to do that, and, and that would help a lot. Uh, for bilateral cases, uh, you know, it doesn't help as much because you got to dissect out both sides, uh, but it does cut down a little bit on, on some of the time, and it allows you to be sure that you're going for one of the better perforators. Um, I think, uh, you know, in terms of like venous, uh, you know, egress and, and everything from the flaps, really hard to tell on preoperative imaging, whether it's uh, you know, gonna be important to get the superficial vein, but you can at least see those veins and it'll, it'll tell you, you know, oh, there's a very large superficial vein on the left side, so I'll, I'll look out for that. Um, but overall, I think it's really helpful for mapping out perforators. Uh, I like to just simply look at the uh, standard cuts and, and look and see where it is measured out from the umbilicus, but some people have gone as far as making 3D models of the perforators and the actual vascular system. Uh, there's even some work with uh, augmented reality where uh, you can wear glasses and the perforators will show up on the patient. Um, that's something that I have not done, but uh, looks interesting. So uh, overall, very helpful, and I, I do highly recommend imaging. Sure. Uh, Dr. Hollenbeck, do you think you could walk us through your markings uh, for a, a standard deep flap? You know, relative to other, other people that I see at, at meetings presenting their, their patients and markings and stuff, I think I tend to take my incisions out way more lateral. Part of that is, you know, I want to get rid of the, the extra tissue on the side at that first surgery, but, but also, um, you know, many times that, that tissue is actually highly, you know, viable. And, and we can use laser angiography to see how far lateral that, that perfusion goes. Um, but overall, the way I'll start is uh, kind of just see what I can pinch uh, with my upper fingers at the umbilicus, the level of the umbilicus. And if I know from a CT scan that there's an unusually large perforator and it's a little bit higher up, then I may actually shift that up a little bit higher above the umbilicus. But generally speaking, I'm going to make my transverse upper incision at the level of the umbilicus. And then I'll just sort of squeeze the tissue together, maybe have the patient kind of lean forward 
and see what will close easily and then kind of work that out towards the side uh, just like you would do for an abdominoplasty and uh, you know from from that point you can imagine where it is now i always revisit my markings when a patient goes to sleep and they're laying flat on the or table i think that is helpful uh, it allows you in a, in a more controlled setting to kind of analyze your um, your markings and to make sure they're symmetric side to side and if the patient has some um, degree of like uh, scoliosis you know you can sort of pick up on some of those things and make sure that your uh, closure is going to be relatively symmetric and then the other thing is I'll, I'll move the bed up sometimes and see if I can pinch it back together. Uh, but it is, it is a little bit hard to tell uh, ahead of time. Um, so that's, that's usually how I mark it, make a circle around the umbilicus um, and then extend the transverse incision off to the side and then down, down the bottom uh, where I can pinch it together. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Hallbeck. So now that we've marked and, um, you know, starting our perforator, dissection. I'm always impressed by how efficient you are in the OR. Do you have any advice uh, for our listeners of how you're choosing your perforators? You seem to commit pretty quickly. Um, and if you can just talk about, are you relying on CT? Is it the Doppler signals? Uh, and then any advice you have for how you can be efficient in this part of the case? Yeah, that's a good, very good question. Uh, you know, decision-making comes with experience. And uh, I, I think around year five, when I was doing these, you know, I, I really felt like I could make good decisions about the perforators and make them fairly quickly based on what I could see in front of me. But, you know, e even now today, occasionally I'll make, you know, a bad decision. And so it's not, it's not a hundred percent. But I think the thing that helped me is at the beginning, I used to use every available technology possible. That includes, uh, you know, handheld Doppler, which I still use today, spy or laser angiography ahead of time. And during the dissection, I would, I would sort of sequentially clamp each of the perforators and then get a laser angiography image. Um, and then, you know, post-op again, I, I try to follow the patients closely and, and do a lot of checks and you start to learn what happens when, when you pick the wrong perforator. You start to understand um, a lot about how tissue uh, behaves and how it's well perfused or not well perfused. But unfortunately, there's no shortcut to that. It just takes time and experience. Um, so I guess my advice would be at the beginning, you know, you know, take more perforators than you think are necessary. That does result in more muscle injury typically. Uh, but your flaps will be better perfused. And I actually started by doing muscle sparing trams was how I started. And as I learned more and more, occasionally I'd get a large single perforator and I'd say, this is a good one for a deep flap. And, and I got more comfortable doing that. Um, I think nowadays, you know, most of, most of you all and the residents around the country are seeing a lot of deep flaps. So I think most people are coming out, you know, comfortable uh, going ahead and dissecting. But I think, I guess my, my main point would be start by taking, you know, more than one perforator at the beginning um, and then, then start kind of, you know, sequentially cutting back on the number of perforators you do. And then you'll be a little bit more efficient because if you dissect out three perforators, it takes a long time. If you dissect out one, you can, you can go pretty quickly. Thank you. Uh, great example, Dr. Halbach just finished uh, a deep today. I don't know what it took you, maybe four hours, if that, so yeah. Impressive. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, a double double can take anywhere uh, from six to eight hours. I think is a pretty reasonable time. 
And uh, today I did a stack deep, uh, which is like two flaps uh, for one breast where you leave it connected, sometimes called a conjoined flap or a bipedical flap. But I, I really like those flap, uh, flap option for, uh, you know, unilateral reconstruction and it works really well. Actually, speaking about stacked flaps, it is something that we see very frequently as Duke residents, um, and it is does seem to be a option that you really like to use for unilateral reconstruction. Can you speak a little bit more about why you choose um, to go the stacked deep route rather than um, really just using, using a unilateral deep for unilateral reconstruction? Sure. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with my early part of my career. You know, one of my main referring surgeons uh, really liked to delay reconstruction. And um, back when I started about 10, 11 years ago, many, many patients preferred a bilateral, you know, a, a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy or CPM. Many patients would pursue that. So I had a lot of patients that had a delayed reconstruction on one side and an immediate reconstruction on the other side. And I, I really appreciated the fact that when you do delayed reconstruction, especially with radiation, the amount of skin that you need to make that three-dimensional shape is just way more than you can possibly imagine ahead of time. Whereas on the immediate side, the flap just acts mostly as a, as a filler material. And so the skin is already intact because of the mastectomy has been done and you don't need that same three-dimensional uh, skin. So. Uh, you know, I had a really hard time getting those patients to look symmetric and, and never really could achieve that. And it really brought home the point that, that when I'm doing a delayed, especially a delayed radiated uh, unilateral reconstruction, that, that a stack deep is, is by far, you know, superior uh, because of the amount of skin and tissue that you get. Um, some, some surgeons prefer, you know, even adding additional flaps to a, to a deep flap. So it doesn't always have to be a stack deep. It could be a single deep with a pap, or it could be a, a pap and a tug or whatever. Uh, actually, you wouldn't do that. It would be like a pap and a, a deep. So there's all kinds of ways to mix and match. I think the point is when you have, especially a delayed radiative reconstruction, you need way more skin and soft tissue than you think. But stack deep works great. Downside to it is a little bit more dissection time and the complexity of anastomosis is fairly uh, challenging. You have to hook up one pedicle, usually in the anti-grade uh, way, and the second pedicle in the retrograde way. So the two pedicles have to be arranged. Usually I crisscross them. Uh, the lower flap goes to the anti-grade system and the upper flap goes to the retrograde system. Uh, then if I have an extra VC, vena comitante, so I'll hook those two together uh, so that each flap drains into the other flap. And that to me has been uh, my preferred uh, anastomotic route, but by the end of that, it's just, it looks like, you know, a bowl of spaghetti in there. And so it's a little, little concerning. Uh, if you ever have to go back on one of those patients, it's extremely challenging. Well, perfect. You, uh, you kind of make it sound easy. So thanks for walking us through. Um, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning, there are other indications for using a deep flap. Um, what kind of defects make you think this might be a good uh, good option for a deep flap as opposed to an ALT or, or other flaps that we're, we're used to seeing? Yeah, I, you know, I, I would really hope that the uh, listeners out there would, would consider deep flap for all kinds of defects. 
Um, and, and back to the stack deep, in, in my opinion, I mean, there is no bigger flap than a stack deep. I, I've got some, you know, pictures and measurements of absolutely enormous flaps, like 40 by 16 centimeters, which could almost resurface an entire arm. And so you just can't get that out of an ALT. I mean, I guess you can do a total thigh flap, but you're going to need multiple pedicles for that probably. And so, you know, that from a pure, you know, standpoint of getting tons of skin, uh, it, it is the best. And if the patient's relatively thin, even male patients, you know, you can do deep flaps on male patients. Even male patients have some available tissue and available skin and some quite a bit. Um, so don't forget that as you're looking. Uh, the defect overall is, is fairly favorable. If you can minimize the amount of muscle damage, um, you know, patients are usually happy to get rid of any extra uh, skin and soft tissue they have in the lower abdomen. Uh, whereas uh, not many patients are, are particularly happy about an ALT donor defect or, or even a scapula or other fasciocutaneous flaps. So um, also very helpful for scalp. Um, I've done a case even where a stack deep, one deep uh, pedicle to one superficial temporal, the other to the other, to the contralateral superficial temporal. So basically an entire resurfaced scalp, uh, which is really hard to do with other types of flaps. So uh, that's, that's the, the point. Sometimes it's a little thick and you need to um, debulk it. I usually don't do that in the initial surgery. Uh, because I worry a little bit about devascularizing the flap. So I usually will come back later and do liposuction, uh, which works fairly well. Yeah, I think we're sometimes pigeonholed into only associating deep flap with breast reconstruction. So uh, thanks for sharing those indications. Finally, as we're um, starting to wrap up, I, you know, you talked at the beginning about the history of the deep flap and how we came to uh, the deep flap and how we use it now. Uh, what do you think are kind of the next steps in the evolution of the use of the deep flap and breast reconstruction just in general? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, by far the, the areas of active interest that, that I'm hearing are related to neurotization and sensory restoration. That's one. Um, you know, there's lots of different techniques out there that have been that have been described. And, you know, from my personal standpoint, I'm just kind of waiting on on some of the data to, to make sure. And also our hospital committee and insurance companies would like to see more data, you know, as it pertains to neurotization, uh, especially if you're using allograph, which is very, very expensive. So um, that's an area of active interest. I look forward to seeing some of that data as it matures. Um, but uh, many times as you're dissecting a perforator out, you'll see a cutaneous nerve that continues along with the perforator. You can try to dissect that back as far as possible, uh, and hopefully you can find a nerve on the chest. There's some debate as to which nerve to use, whether you go for the intercostal along your rib resection or whether you go for more of a lateral uh, branch of the intercostal along the lateral chest wall. So um, those are the kind of things I'd like to see played out in, in the data, but that's a big area. Um, the other, I, I would say, is just um, is how you deliver the care. Uh, there's been tons of work done um, by, by our group as well uh, in terms of things like ERAS and overall patient experience and um, how patients do, you know, long term, whether it be with patient reported outcome instrument or, or other things. There's also a lot of work being done on increasing access um, to, to this procedure because there's many patients that, uh, you know, have breast cancer and, and would like a, a nice reconstruction, 
but maybe they don't get offered this uh, flap as you know the place they're going may not may not have that available. So access is another big area of research and interest. And then I think you know the final thing is uh, perforator delay. Uh, there are several groups around the country that have really strongly advocated uh, going in and delaying the perforator ahead of time. And the rationale there is that uh, you can increase the size of a single vessel and you can turn what would have been a multiple perforator flap into just a single perforator flap. And then you get all the advantages I talked about earlier in terms of time and decreased abdominal wall morbidity. Uh, so that's that's being done, and the pen group even has gone as far as to actually do some of the dissection with minimally invasive techniques using the robot. Uh, so I know some other groups have looked at that as well, Indy Anderson and, and perhaps others. Uh, so that that remains an area of, of interest. But um, you know, overall, you do have to make a rather large skin incision to remove the flap, and so I think the the goal there is to minimize the fascial incision. And then finally, there's some work on, on the SIEA flap and trying to delay that to increase the size of that flap, which would result in basically minimal abdominal donor site morbidity. Um, in, my, in my instance, with delay, the thing I've done has been to delay uh, the DCIA. And I think it's worth mentioning that real quick before we're done. Uh, the DCIA is a little bit lateral uh, to the deep system and can be used to create what's called an extended deep flap where the lateral tissue that I talked about earlier can actually be vascularized on, a, on its own pedicle. Um, so sometimes those are kind of small and if you delay those, you can go back and really capture quite a bit of that lateral tissue. That's not something I do frequently. I've just done it a couple of times, uh, but that is also helpful. So those are the things I see that are evolving. And uh, you know that's what I, I challenge you all who are listening and, and you all here, our residents at Duke, to be further uh, creative and invent new ways uh, to improve patient care and outcomes with uh, the deep flap and other flaps. Well, that was wonderful. We have uh, one final kind of fun question for you. Oh, great. Uh, so what is one of the most influential or one of the most memorable pieces of advice that you received as a plastic surgery trainee and how has that influenced your practice? Oh gosh. Uh, so many, so many words of wisdom along the way. Um, I think one thing that, that has always stuck with me is that uh, uh, from my former uh, chief when I was here as a resident, uh, Scott Levin, and uh, he used to say, you know, um, you're not sick, the patient is sick. And, and to me, that kind of summarized up a lot of what goes through your mind and your body as you're pushing yourself to you know, come in at night and you're uh, trying to decide whether I should use a skin graft or a flap and, and things like that, that really challenge your, your core, you know, integrity in terms of uh, delivering care or deciding to take a patient back to the OR, uh, things like that. And it becomes easy to kind of complain and get down about how hard some of this stuff can be. Uh, especially, you know, emotionally, there's a lot of challenges in plastic surgery with, with patients that become disfigured and, and suffer, you know, in that regard. Um, but it, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're trying to help somebody else out and, and we're okay. And so that to me uh, kind of sticks with me. Um, you know, it's a very simple sort of thought, you know, we're, we're not sick. Fortunately, you know, it's the patients that are sick and that we're trying to help. So 
Uh, that's been my approach. And I credit Dr. Levin with that, as well as many, many other uh, great uh, bits of advice. That's good advice. Well, thank you again for, for joining us today. We really appreciate uh, having you on our podcast and um, we will see you next time for the rest of the review. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.